with me to Exodus, Exodus in the 18th chapter, we're picking up in the middle of the chapter, you remember last week we saw Jethro come, bringing Moses' wife and sons, and after Moses testified to the greatness of God, it becomes clear that God had done a work in Jethro's heart. And they worship together, and then they have a fellowship meal together. And we pick up on the next day. Verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said... What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice, and I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select all, from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place them over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we continue in our worship before you. We come under the word. Uh, We come as you have appointed for the preaching of the word uh, by the man that you have given gifts and given as a gift to the church. And Lord, we pray that you would use that man as your vessel for honor. For our pastor is but a man and we are but dust ourselves. Lord, we would like Christ to be honored in our midst. We desire to hear Christ lifted up and the word proclaimed. Lord, grant clarity in the preaching and clarity in our hearing. 
And may we profit from what we hear for the glory of Christ at work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we begin to think about this text. I want us to turn our minds uh, to the New Testament. When we hear Jesus Christ engaging with his disciples, he's asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they give several answers. And then he asks them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a remarkable passage, particularly because Christ goes on to point out to Peter that he was not blessed because he had figured this out on his own. But my Father who is in heaven revealed it to him. That's an incredible passage, an important passage. But what follows immediately after that is Jesus makes one of his greatest and most encouraging promises to the church. What does he say? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus did not begin building the church, though, at that point, not after the resurrection. He began building the church ever since the first members were added. And that was Adam and Eve in the garden. When they heard the gospel and the Spirit worked in them and they believed God, as we hear about Abraham and others, it was accounted to them as righteousness. We see those manifestations of faith, as some of you will remember when we were in Genesis uh, several years ago. So these first members uh, begin the church, and then we know of the one who, like them, believed the promise of God that there would be the seed of the woman who would come and deliver the people. Uh, we hear of Seth, a, a godly son. And then he had a son, Enosh, and in, that, in Enosh's days, we're told that the people began to call upon the Lord. And so it was that things progressed. But then you might remember the deterioration that came in Genesis 6 because the sons of God went into the daughters of men. The church was intermarrying with the world. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God brought discipline upon mankind. He destroyed the whole of mankind with a worldwide flood, with the exception of Noah and his family, eight souls preserved alive in the ark, a picture of Christ. And then from that time on, God began building his church again. But we see a shift when he came to chapter 12, that God began to deal very specifically with one man and his descendants, Abram. He called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And then we move on forward, we find that from his great-grandson, Jacob, who had 12 sons and multiplied a church into this great host that we now are hearing about in the book of Exodus. This great host, the church that Moses is now leading in the wilderness. And we've seen the nature of these men and women several times. We've done passages where they grumbled and the hand of God uh, was against them. In our text this morning, we find that the Lord is establishing government for that great host. We've already seen how 
and all the occasions of rebellion and murmuring, complaining. Moses alone has stood before God. Moses has borne the weight of the responsibility uh, to represent the people to God and God to the people. Here we find an account where things change. This great congregation is an unruly bunch. Aren't we all as sinners, even today? We need instruction. We need discipline. They did. Um, now we are, they see that they needed help resolving disputes among themselves. And one of the key marks of the church has been structure or government, church government. Jesus, as king and head of the church, has appointed under shepherds to rule under him and over the people for his glory and their good. We think of that in the New Testament. We know Paul writes of that. We, we see how the apostles were leading the congregation and then deacons were added. And in time when we start hearing about elders, Paul moving uh, from place to place, preaching the gospel and the Lord blessing and churches being planted and elders being appointed. And we tend to think of church government as a New Testament thing. But here we find in Exodus 18 that God through means, through Jethro's advice, appoints church government for the church of old. Moses was the sole judge, as we have heard from the text. The people would come to him. They would stand all day long waiting for their case to be heard. Moses is also the prophet and the priest of the people as well. It will become very clear in the second half. It will be as the priesthood is established. We will see... Uh, the need for the multiplication of that. Try that. So, they needed help resolving disputes amongst themselves. And Christ, though he has yet to come, he is the king and the head of the church, as God, even in those days. And so we see that he supplies for the church of old. He raises up others to serve with him. We're going to look at the text of four main heads. The need for church government. The benefits of a plurality of elders. The qualifications of elders. And the implementation of the plan. We're going to focus mostly on that first point. The need for church government. That's the largest part of that's in the text. The Holy Spirit moved that holy man, as we're told by Peter, to write these things. Who was that holy man? It was Moses. Moses is the author of these first five books of the, of the scriptures as the human author moved along by the Holy Spirit. And he writes about that here. In uh, John, not, in Jean, John Curran, uh, says plainly the purpose of this paragraph, he's talking about all that we read, is to show the foundation of the judicial system for Israel. In verse 13, it's very clear, as I pointed out earlier, it took place the next day after the, the events of the previous day, wrapping up with a fellowship meal, including Aaron and the elders, uh, I mean not the elders, but the chiefs to, of the tribes that came together. This is the day of Jethro's conversion. Moses, the very next day, is back at work. Scripture tells us that he sat to judge the people, and the people stood before him. Moses is seated in a seat of judgment. 
we find Moses seated another time when the battle is on and he's holding his arms up extended and became weary and Aaron and Hur bring in the rocks so that he'd be seated and they could hold his hands up. Find there's limitations. And a man can, the people, they're standing before Moses. They're in a line, uh, a great, to borrow a British word, a great queue uh, to see Moses. And he's seated in a seat of judgment. This is the purpose of uh, the judicial system for Israel, to dispense justice to the people. But what's the problem? Moses alone is acting as judge. Moses is the only one in that role. And let us understand, Moses is not usurping authority of others. This is the role that God has given to him in leading the people. He's God's appointed leader. It's part of his responsibilities. And so, as the text says, Moses is kept busy from morning until evening. This is a full day. We see here, then, there's a tremendous need. Think again about how great is that host of people and what the possibility of the conflicts could be amongst so many. Well, Moses' father-in-law, he's visiting, and he spends that day watching what takes place. And at the end of the day, Moses comes home to relax and eat, and Jethro is there, and he's ready with two questions. Find that in verse 14. First one he asks him is, what is this thing that you are doing for this people? What's his point? This children, this is what we call a rhetorical question. He's asking the question not because uh, Moses hasn't thought about it. It's, it's rhetorical that Moses, it's to compel Moses to think about the thing that he's doing. He wants him to think about it. It didn't need an answer. Then he follows up with a second question, which sounds more like an accusation. You see, after what is this thing that you are doing for the people, why do you sit alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Jothro is not accusing Moses of your seizing power. Jethro is finding fault with Moses trying to do it all alone. And how it's become a burden, not only for Moses, but for the people. You can imagine, people are taken away from other necessary, good and lawful employments as they spend waiting to spend their day waiting to hear, have their case heard, to hear the counsel of God through Moses, whom God has appointed to be their leader. Well, then Moses gives his explanation, if not a justification for his actions, in verse 15 through 16. Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So you have several things happening that Moses tells us about. People are looking for answers from God. They recognize Moses' authority, the position that he's placed in, uh, that of a mediator between them and God. We see here that Moses is a type of Christ. He's an early picture of Christ and what he does for us as he mediates between man and God. And then he is more specific. When they have something difficulty, he judges between them. Well, what's the difficulty? He's judging between one and another. There's, There's conflict. There's disagreement. There's argumentation. 
Uh, maybe one wrong done by another to another, and they're wanting justice in the matter. And then we see Moses says he makes known the statutes of God and his laws. And in that, resolving the conflict, answering the dispute, giving the people the answers of God to the people. So Moses' actions are commendable. The whole thing is necessary. Consider Israel's been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Much that was once known has now been forgotten. We saw the Israelites fighting early on in the record of Moses. Remember how Moses found an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, and he killed the Egyptian. The next day he sees two Hebrews striving with each other, and he tries to intervene, and they call him out for what had taken place the previous day, and he flees. So there's been strife in Israel even while they're slaves in Egypt. There's much that they need to know. Let me insert something here. Some commentators have protested that God had not given the law yet, so how can Moses settle matters about the statutes of God and his laws, as Moses said here in the end of verse 16? Well, clearly the answer is God has made his ways known since the garden. God gave Adam laws, instructions, commandments in the garden. There was a tree that he was not to eat. He commanded him he could eat from all these other trees. He gave him his specific tasks that he was to guard and keep the garden. He had responsibilities under God there. And we're told that Abel is a prophet. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were prophets. So God has had a means for making his way known to the, the people. Abraham has an understanding of what his right for sacrifice, as do Isaac and Jacob. And furthermore... This is true for us. The law of God is written on man's heart because we are made in the image of God. There are certain things that all men everywhere know. We know that it is wrong to murder another, to rise our hand and to strike with injustice. Yes, sin has marred man's understanding of the law and destroyed man's ability to keep it. We're reminded of how great is our need of a redeemer. We've mentioned that Moses is a mediator. And we've seen him function much like a savior. But he cannot save the people from their sins. And so God has been giving his laws. Moses has a basis for instructing the people. Even though the law, as, as we think of the law in the narrow sense, the Ten Commandments, is yet to be given Well, Jethro has more to say about Moses' practice. Um, he's asked Moses these two questions. In verses 15 and 16, Moses has responded uh, in you know, defending his actions. Well, then Jethro has more to say about Moses, particularly single-handedly judging all of Israel. Look at verse 17. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. He's not addressing the fact that Moses is mediating, a judge is passing judgment, helping the people. Because he goes on to say, he makes it very clear what he is saying is not good. And it's not wise in that sense. He says, both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. And that would certainly be true. If that was one day, 
you know, every day more disputes would arise. It, it could very well be that the, the, the crowd before Moses grows because he can only speak to so many in the course of a day, and others are hearing how Moses has helped them with their case, and so they decide, well, we'll go to Moses. And it would just have escalated and multiplied. Jethro sees the weakness of the model that Moses is using, and he wants to correct it. He, he rightly concludes, you're going to wear yourselves out. <laughs> Moses, this is too much. It's too much for you. It's too much for the people. We'll see how beneficial um, the advice that Jethro gives is in a little bit. So what follows then in verses 19 through 23 is Jethro offers Moses a solution. Jethro understands that Moses is God's chosen man to lead the people, and that he needs to represent the people. No one else is, uh, speaks to God face to face, as we're told that Moses did in Numbers 12. So Jethro, in, the, in the, the, what he speaks here, he utters a benediction. He says... Um, King James doesn't quite capture the sense of it. He utters a benediction of, may God be with you. It's a benediction, may God help you. And then he goes on to speak to, about Moses' responsibilities. And he makes some suggestions and recommendations. First, Moses is the people of uh, the people's representative before God. He's in front of the people. That's the way that he speaks of You are in front of of God for the people, and you're in front of the people for God. That's what a mediator is. He stands between God and the people and represents one to the other. We know that Moses is the covenant mediator by God's own appointment. Secondly, Moses will bring, the, he says, then the difficult decisions before God, and this will result on a lighter load. So Jethro then advises Moses that he should verse 20, teach the people the statutes and laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work which they must do. When he makes that last statement, the way they are to walk and the work which they must do, ties back to the end of verse 16 when he says, I will make known the statutes of God and his laws. So here, this instruction is more than religious teaching. This isn't just about uh, matters of worship. Indeed, not much has been revealed beyond what uh, mankind has known by God setting an example. But Moses is telling the people how to walk and work, what they must do. This reminds us then of the creation mandate given to Adam in the garden, that he is tending to keep the garden. And that's still our responsibility. This is our duty before God. We are to care for the creation that God has set us in. We're image bearers, and we represent God. We're stewards of it. We're to be good stewards of it. I've said to you before, the church should be leading the world in right environmental protection, using the wisdom that God has revealed in his word about how to care for the creation and not some harebrained ideas for men with wicked agendas. So again, we see Moses as a Christ type. Moses points them to Christ, even as he points us to Christ. But Christ is more than Moses. Christ is more than a mere man. He is the God-man. 
And even now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, representing us in the very presence of the Father, even as he represents himself to us through the means of grace in the church. What's different between Jesus and Moses? Well, Jesus is uniquely suited to serve in his role. It's uh, the same group that protests that uh, no law has been given yet, so what's Moses judging by? Also, they say that uh, God would not send Moses such wise advice through Jethro, a Midianite priest. Well, let's respond to that. The facts are that Jethro has a new heart, and the spirit of wisdom lives within him. In the New Testament era, think of the book of Acts, there are brand new converts that are given gifts by the Holy Spirit because the apostles' time with the church is limited, and God raises up men with gifts that then can serve to give instruction to the church. They're instruments in the Lord's hand. So we that doesn't really make uh, an argument as to why Jethro couldn't have spoken wisdom from God. But we're going to address that a little more fully in a moment when we come to a later verse. The fact that Moses records this event is remarkable. He records how it happened, and it underscores the validity of the account, that this is what happened. Midian was no friend of Israel for years to come. And it would be highly unlikely that anyone would invent such a story involving a Midianite unless this is exactly what took place. It's an accurate record of what happened. Remember, we'll come back to this a little bit later. Now, I've skipped over, and we're going to take up more of, of Jethro's advice as we consider the benefits of the plurality of elders. Jethro had more advice. Look again at verse 21. Moreover, you shall select men, or you shall select from all the people able men, that is men, male, and then he gives some qualifications, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. What do each of those three speak about? Speak of the character of the man. That's what's here. It's not because of uh, their position in the tribe or how well they're liked. It's do they have the character. And he says, select men that are of these qualifications. And he says, then set them over the congregation. In other words, divide the group, congregation. And you see tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Men, according to their abilities, who would be responsible for these groups. Some men would not be suitable to be responsible for a thousand, but they were capable to be over ten. The system suggests, then, that a man who was over ten, if he had a dispute, he couldn't answer. He could go to the one who was over the fifty that he would have been in a group in. And if that man didn't have an answer, he could go to the one who was over the group of a hundred or the groups of a hundred. And if he couldn't answer, he could go to a thousand, and ultimately it was such a difficult case, then they would come to Moses to answer. You see something of a, you might think in our day, of an appeals court process, a, a, a progression up through levels of judgment. And so it would be that only the uh, matters that were too difficult for even the judges of a thousands to handle, 
that Moses would handle. Notice this is a permanent solution. Look at verse 22. And let them judge the people at all times. This wasn't just for this moment. That's something we believe, that the office of elder and deacon is an office in perpetuity. It's to be held by the man unless he becomes disqualified through sin. Or perhaps because of age he moves to emeritus status. But from the beginning, the first time we hear of elders, and that's what we're dealing with. They're called judges and they're called rulers. That's exactly the references in the New Testament for elders. They're overseers, bishops, rulers, to care for the people, shepherds. That's what these men also were to do. The history of the Old Testament that bears out that this, what is said here, that they were to judge the people at all times, this model becomes used throughout history, Israel's history for years to come. It's the way that it is done. We saw that the elders of the people, even in Jesus' day, in, Don, in the book of John, they were the ones that were against Jesus. These same men that were in these same positions uh, who obviously were not qualified were the ones who opposed him. I mentioned earlier qualifications. We're going to look at those more thoroughly now in this third point, the qualifications. Verse 21, qualifications, they deal with character. The first thing that Jethro says is able men. The word means men of sterling character. They have virtue and integrity. That's the first one. And then secondly, such as fear God. John Curd here points out that fear means reverence that leads to obedience. Not fearful men, men who would tremble at the presence of other men, but men who have reverence for God and respect for God's ways that leads them to obedience, particularly in the dispensing of their duties, but it's already demonstrated in the way they live their lives. Thirdly, they're to be men of truth. They're known for honesty. They're not liars. And fourthly, they are hating covetousness, that is, dishonest gain. They're not men who would be susceptible to the bribe in a matter of a dispute to decide for one over against another because he was slipped a few coins. The structure of 10s, 50s, 100s, and 1,000s, it's very much a military structure, which is what is consistent with, it's consistent with what follows in uh, the life of Israel. Israel's going to be engaged in many wars. And so by this structure being established here, there's a structure for the governing of the tribes, the organization of them into units, much the way that armies today are organized. Here we see it in Jethro's advice. In the New Testament, we find that Jesus still has provided the church with government. Ephesians 4 tells us, we're just a moment ago talking about Christ's resurrection. And what follows his resurrection, but his ascension. And Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that as he ascended on high, that he led men captive and he gave gifts to men. And Paul goes on to write that he gave the gifts to men. Those men are giving as gifts to the church, elders and deacons. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. I've mentioned this before. Who's doing the work of ministry? The church, the saints. 
we're engaged in the work of ministry. We also find that our king, the head of the church, has set down qualifications for those who will hold office. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. If you look into the list in those two places, what is the main focus? Character. Character is the most important thing. The character of the man. A godly man. One worthy of respect. One that the church can trust. One who rightly represents the chief shepherd. One who is Christ-like in his conduct, in his leadership. Indeed, one that the people of God can go to. There's one change, or one addition, which we'd say, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, that as he speaks of the elders, they have something they're capable of. They're to be apt to teach. Men who are able to teach the people. Is is that listed here in this passage in Exodus? No, not not explicitly, but it is certainly implied. And when uh, Jethro tells Moses that he should then teach the people, it is, I believe, uh, teaching the statutes, the laws, that would begin with these men that are over the tens, fifties, hundreds, and the thousands. He needs to instruct them so they're equipped then to carry out their responsibilities for those assigned to them. So there's an aptness to teach in, by necessary consequence, one who is apt to teach is also to be teachable. So before we move on, some application. We see, even in the Old Testament, this motley crew, if we can call them that, of Israelites, there at Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai when these things take place, Christ is merciful to them. Do you see the mercy and the advice that Jethro gives so that Moses and the people are not worn out? So there's just solutions so they're not wearied with the standing day after day in the sun waiting for their opportunity to be heard? I can, I can imagine the disputes breaking out when they come back the next day. No, I was ahead of you. No, I was ahead of you. They're sinners. You see the mercy and tenderness of God to provide for his beloved bride, the church. He's always supplied a government for his people. And for this, we should be grateful. We should be grateful the government of Christ is appointed. We should be grateful for our elders and our deacons. And also we should pray for the officers that Jesus has given as gifts to us, the church, for the way the Lord uses them in our midst. And we should pray for the Lord to preserve them. For the Lord to preserve them. Some of you will know that if you ask me, what can I pray for you? If there's not something obvious in my life, and even if there is some specific thing that comes to mind, I probably will have told you, pray that I finish well. And I would encourage each of us to pray for our elders and deacons that they finish well. Pray that your pastor finishes well. When the, sheep, when the shepherd is taken away, and particularly in the matter of the shepherd stumbling in the way of righteousness, the sheep are scattered. We've seen that. Your elders have seen that in our presbytery, the, the sober and serious impact that a fallen shepherd has upon the life of a church. 
So pray that the Lord would preserve your elders and deacons, preserve them in their character for his glory and their continued service in our midst. One more application before we go on. Let us also be praying for officers for the future of this particular church. The men who serve at this time will not always be able. They may not always be here. Pray that the Lord be raising up elders and deacons for this church in the next generation, in the future, when that time should come, whatever time that might be. Well, fourthly, we close with the implementation of the plan. In verse 23, what do we read? There's a conditional statement here. Notice it opens with if, and if you go just a little bit later, you have then. Children, that's what you call a conditional statement. If you do this, then you should expect this. Has your mother ever said that? If you go clean up your room, then you can have a bowl of ice cream. Or if you clean up your room, then we can go to the park. That's a conditional statement, and you understand that. And that's what, that's what Jethro says. He says, if you do this thing and God so command you, then the people shall be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace. Moses won't be worn down. The people won't be worn down. He will have the strength to do other responsibilities. Plus, there's the other benefit. The people will go to their place in peace. They won't have to wait for days for justice. They can have conflicts resolved, and they can get back to the matters of life, the responsibilities they have in their home, for their livestock, their children. That's true even in our day when a court system works well. It works in a timely manner. That's actually one of the realities that we see in our day. Our court system by the Constitution is supposed to do things in a timely manner. But men have complicated things. So if the matters are quickly resolved, people can return to their work because disorder and distrust and unrest will be nipped in the bud. That is addressed early, lest it multiply and escalate and spread now, earlier, uh, I mentioned that some have suggested that Jethro was not capable of saying this. I want you to notice the text. It could be that God gave Jethro this revelation, but Jethro seems to be speaking from his own wisdom because the conditional if applies to that everything before the then. If you do this thing, and God so command you, so we could read it this way, if you do this thing, and if God so command you, Jethro is saying to Moses, he recognizes the relationship that God ha Moses has with God. He said, in a sense, he's like saying, don't just take my word for this, that this is a good advice. And if God commands you to do this, then implement it. In other words, pray about it. Talk to the Lord about it. So very wise words. Jethro is a wise man. In other words, Jethro says, trust the Lord. He's not saying, thus saith the Lord. He's giving advice. We see humility in Jethro. It's likely that 
that took place. It's not recorded that Moses went and spoke to God, but I think it's, we should conclude that he did. That's his na- manner, his nature, that he would seek God and seek his counsel and advice. And then what, what do we do? We find that Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law. He took that advice, and he implemented all that his father had, father-in-law had recommended. Verse 25, and Moses chose able men, that is, men who had ability. Uh, he didn't choose, and I'm going to use this in a technical sense, men who were idiots. Now, there is, there is a, de- a, capacity, a decapacity that some have in their mental faculties. He chose men who were able. They had demonstrated ability and competences, but above all, character. And then he made them heads over the peoples, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And then the play, once it's set in place, what happens, verse 26, so they judge the people at all times. This became the model. It was implemented, and it continues to work. And he goes on to say, but the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. And then Jethro leaves. Something I observed here, notice, then Moses let his father-in-law depart. He gave him leave to depart. And I think what we're being told here by this, the way this is put here, is that Jethro has come to recognize, though he is an elder to Moses, he's his father-in-law, he's recognizing that Moses is a man of God, a ruler of a great nation. And he takes leave of him. He asks for permission to go home. And Moses let him go home. That seems a little strange to us. We don't grow up. We didn't grow up in a monarchy. But if you grew up in a, in a kingdom, whether it was a queen or a king, you would ask leave of them whenever you were in their presence. You would ask for permission to now depart, and you would always back out of the room. You never turned your back to the sovereign. Also strange to us growing up here in this place. Moses let his father-in-law. Depart, and he went his way to his own land. Later on in the history, we find that, Mo, uh, that Jethro's people come to live with Israel in the land after it's been con- conquered, or even during the time of conquest. But that's something that's in the book of Judges that some of you who were here when I began my ministry might recall, because it was a Kenite woman, Jael, who took the nail and put it through the head of Sisera. Jabin's commander of his army was a descendant of Jethro. Anyway, let's have some application. First thing is, we too must be wise when people come giving us advice and counsel. Yes, we need to be wise in what we do, but we need to be wise when people come giving us counsel and advice. We should measure what they have to say by the standard of God's word. We should pray and seek counsel from the Lord. And he has spoken to us in his word. Let us also learn to have wise Christians in our life who we can seek advice and counsel from. For many of you, you children in particular, that will be from your parents. But even for you adults, if you have a godly father, godly mother, you might, I hope you still turn to them advice. That was one of the sad things for me is my father's mind began to deteriorate because he was someone, he was one of the, the men in my life that 
was an advisor. I would go and I would seek his counsel and his advice on matters. And when I detected that his, he was no longer capable, it was, it was a sorrow. Something had been lost. Seek counsel from those that are older. When I do premarriage counseling, I encourage every couple that I've done premarriage counseling, find an older godly couple in your church and attach yourself to them. Spend time with them. Invite them to your home. And hopefully they'll invite you into their home. Build a relationship because you're going to have questions. And there's a lot of time where older, wiser saints can be a help to us. Not everything needs to go to the elders. But the more difficult matters then would go to the elders. Well, let's conclude with this. We see the kindness and favor of God our Savior when dealing with our church, with his church. Here we are, the church in its infancy, so long ago, with so many problems, and yet God through Jethro provides counsel and advice. The church in that day could not have functioned without godly men as rulers in their midst. And it's just as true today. Dr. Legan Duncan, he's the chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, has said, only when the church leaders, such as pastors, elders, and deacons, are righteous and reverent, can God's people expect to flourish. Close quote. John Curran goes on to say, that the faithful preaching of the word of God is central to this. We believe that. We embrace that. The preaching of the word of God. It's in this that we hear Christ. Christ is the word made flesh and dwelt among us. See, it's who we hear from the pages of scripture. But that's not enough. Discipline must also be exercised through the elders in order for the church to be healthy. Only then will holiness and righteousness prevail in the church. We see that all the way back in the book of Exodus. These are two of the three marks of a true church. The faithful preaching of the word of God and the faithful administration of church discipline. Just for your information, I think, I hope all you know what the third one is. The faithful administration of the sacraments. The three flow from the first, the faithful preaching of the word of God. Jesus Christ died to save a people. He came into the world. He lived an obedient life. We speak of this often. He lived the obedience that we could not do. have been reminded about that this morning in the law homily. He did that for us. And then he took the penalty for our sins for us. He saved us. We were wicked sinners. Just like we see Israel is in Egypt. They're in the bondage of slavery and sin. They're in the house of bondage. And they're brought out. And that's marvelous. But Christ loves his church so much, he doesn't stop there. He didn't stop there with Israel. They needed to grow. And so it is with us. We call that growth, sanctification. Christ has provided for us that we should grow in holiness. That is obedient living. That's another reason why Jesus came into the world. Isn't it marvelous? There's such a Savior. He doesn't just justify us, redeem us, give us access to heaven, a promise of a home in heaven, um, adoption as children of the Father. He loves us so much that he wants us to become like him, to become conformed to the image of the Son, as Elder Slater prayed 
earlier, that we should become more like Christ. Christ gave himself on the cross to secure all this for us. And he also gave us under-shepherds to help us, as he has commanded us, to work on our salvation with fear and trembling. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the old book, uh, these accounts of events that took place so long ago, and yet they are profitable. They're for our instruction. It's incredible to think of events that took place thousands of years ago still provide instruction for your church, even as they have down through the ages. And we see parallels in how uh, we see this, the same structure, even in some sense, in the church today. Father, we are thankful for our elders and our deacons. And even now, we pray for them, Lord, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them discernment, that you would continue the work that you become begun in them, that they would continue to grow and become more Christ-like, that their character would be exemplary. Lord, protect them. Protect them from the world. Protect them from their own flesh. Protect them from the devil. Lord, and keep them faithful, even as we've said moments ago. Lord, we pray that our elders and deacons would finish well. And, Father, we would also pray that other application, that you would raise up men to be elders and deacons for the church in the future, for the church always has need of that. Father, we think of the mission works in our presbytery, that our mission works because they don't have elders and deacons in the local body. They have temporary sessions, men serving from other churches, doing that added work because it's so important. Lord, would you raise up men in their midst to be elders and even deacons for these young congregations that they might see your loving embrace and your loving loving provision that they might have those in their midst to help them with small things as well as great. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand and sing now.